Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. here and I totally forgot to do an intro to my interview with Marco Visconti. I actually interviewed him a couple months ago when I was still in Asia. So yeah I really enjoyed talking to Marco. He's so knowledgeable, such a scholar gentleman about Aleister Crowley, the Lima, Kabbalah. If you want to learn more about this topic please keep watching. It's definitely true that, you know, that I'm a dude to Crowley and the Crowley being such a difficult person and especially, you know, somebody who lived over a hundred years ago, oh, he died in the, in 47. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was like, I always try to describe him to the people that come to my courses at Treadwells. He was a trust fund kid with a few trust in magic. And, uh, he was a hipster, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so he, he came from a, from a uh, background of, Straight up white privilege, we, we, we cannot deny that. Everybody wants to try and deny that or reframe Crowley in a different way. I think they're doing a disservice to the, to the, to the current, to the, to the tradition, because um, that is where Telema comes from, at least intellectually. If, maybe spiritually it's different, and we will discuss it at some point. But intellectually, I mean, it comes from this man who was a white, white kid with uh, around well, when 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 the when he inherited his fortune, he had something in the range between two and four million pounds in today's money. Which okay, it's not like a billionaire, it's not a Kardashian, but it's a rich guy. I mean, I don't have the kind of money. I don't, I don't know what people do. You know. Yeah. So, you know, at the same time, I think he always felt this connection. Uh, to the highest and to the spiritual, he wanted to try and go and, and figure out for himself what was really there that could enable an evolution of humanity. And of course, I mean, he was a bisexual man in, in a very straight and, um, you know, morally uh, imposed uh, British culture of the time. So he wanted to try and find freedom and liberty for people like him um, and people, everybody like him, who felt different. They didn't really feel um, at home in that very strict uh, puritanical uh, society of the time. What, around what time period was he alive? Well, he, he was born in 1875 and he died in 1947. So, you know, late, late Victorian period into, uh, into Georgian period, pretty much. And uh, so he, he, he lived, uh, he lived the, the two world wars. I mean, he died at, at the end of, just right after the end of the Second World War. And uh, it is, so that, that was the time he was living, in, it was, the times he was living in. And he was, he was born here in the UK, in Leamington Spa, and then lived in London most of his life, but then he lived in the US a lot, he lived in Mexico, I mean, he lived all over the world. Uh, you see this old man probably like addicted to heroin and cocaine and dying alone with no money in a shabby place. That was absolutely not true. Um, till the very end, he, I mean, of course, maybe he, he did um, end up uh, in several bankruptcies because he, he, he did deplete all his uh, inheritance, but that doesn't mean that he ended up on, in the streets. So. 
that I would always say that that's kind of a, a narrative that's been put on by people that would want to fight Croy to say, you know, like the man did a lot of crappy things, and he did. So that, that, that's why he ended up like that. Like that. But that, 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 that's not the truth. He had a lot of problems connected to him. I mean, at least for me, when I when I started studying him and uh, I started getting into the lab, and that was around uh, well, 25 years ago. <laughs> I was when I was like, in my teens, and I discovered uh, Crowley. Of course, at first, the first thing that really resonated with me was this powerful man that you know was able to you know command magic and storm the gates of heaven uh, with a completely different viewpoint on magic and spirituality. But then, I mean, at some point I also realized that this man is also deeply flawed because he had a terrible relationship with women. Um, and sadly, this is some of the things that uh, trickled down in Telema as a, as a culture. And something that I, I've, been, you know, I've seen in, in the groups I've been, uh, I've been a member of and uh, I try to make change about it. And then, you know, in what I'm organizing right now, the group I'm organizing right now, I'm trying to do exactly that. Because, yeah. For those in the audience who are just like, what the fuck is Dilemma? Or Dilemma? Or Thelema? Or, you know, there's a million ways people pronounce it and they've probably seen it before, the word, but they're like, what is it? Yeah, what is yeah, it? Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, Telema, which I pronounce Telema, uh, is a Greek word. And uh, I would say my pronunciation is ancient Greek, Koine Greek, because I studied it at uh, university and uh, uh, in high school, because in Italy you can you can make the horrible choice to study ancient Greek in high school. <laughs> so that's what I did. And so the pronunciation is Telema. And uh, it's a Greek word that means will, like the will to do things, the will to... Uh, establish things to manifest things. So, from the very beginning, you can you can have the idea that the, the whole concept of this. First of all, what is this? Is it a religion? It is like a magical system. It is a philosophy. I would say it's all these things according to what it, it what it has to be for you. Uh, if you want it to be a religion, it has all the perks of the religion. There's a there's a received text, which is one. And uh, there's some tenets you can follow, uh, there's rituals you can enact. So yeah, it, it can be a religion. But if you're not a religious person, Telema also tells you, well, if that's not your will to see this as a religion, it can be a philosophical um, school of life. It can be, it can really be whatever it needs you. Uh, and this is important because the concept of will puts the, um, the center stage to to the person, Christianity, Islam, uh, Hebraism. Usually, the center stage is God or God figure, for example. And and man, or male and female, has to strive towards God. Whereby in dilemma, the center stage is man, human, humankind. So both male and female. And, and you know, like this is very difficult because probably you always used to uh, use use the term man. Uh, to determine uh, male and female, and of course, in in today's in today's uh, these times, it's I find it problematic to always call everyone just man, because then this creates a problem in in the in the in the culture itself, in the Islamic culture itself, whereby it's almost implied that then you know the male is almost the one that actually can be more more active, and the women always have to be passive and reactive, which is. Absolutely not true, and it's absolutely not even not even what it's written in the books. Whereby some of our uh, god goddesses figures, like Babylon, Nuit, they are absolutely strong, 
more strong than the man, I would say. Like, the first goddess, goddess you meet in the Book of Law is Neat, which is the goddess of the sky, the goddess of the cosmos, if you want. And, uh, and everything else is kind of an accessory, to be fair, to me. Say, like, so, what I have heard about Crowley yeah, and Thelema and what I think a lot of people think about it. So yeah. first of all, there's this prevailing thought that Crowley was a Satanist, and that, you know, like, a, that statue of, like, the horned, like, god, sort of like a, what is it, the, it's, it's another, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that came from Crowley. That's one thing people think. Another thing people think is that Crowley was completely a misogynist, and he hated women, and he just used women to do magic in that he would just have sex with, like, really strangely, like, physically formed women because he thought that it would make him more magically powerful. And a lot of women are just like, oh, weirdo. Um, and another thing that a lot of people and what I have always thought was that the people who read Crowley, a lot of them remind me of, like, people who are really into that sort of, like, Nietzschean idea of the Ubermensch, you know? It's sort of like they read it and after that they're just like, holy shit, I'm a god. I'm the best. I'm the edgiest yeah. of all edgelords. And they've just become complete and utter assholes and douchebags. So I'm just like, I don't want to talk to people who are reading this thing that almost seems like a white supremacist, uh, male, you know, like, man's yeah. rights advocate. Uh, yeah, I, so it's I, I just a lot of really bad stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't think they're true. Uh, but it's also true that Thelemites as a whole did a very poor job so far to try and contest them, <laughs> especially the last one, because the first two are very easy to, to deal with, while the last one, it, you know, people should just, you know, act decently, and most people don't, because, let's face it, most people are kind of shit, to be fair. <laughs> so, back to, the, back to the first one. So, Crowley was, I would say that Crowley was as much as a Satanist, as much as he was um, a Christian. I mean, that, that might sound weird. But what he was really, well, first of all, he was um, he was raised by in a very strict uh, Christian sect called the Plymouth Brethren. So the, the, his parents were super into it, and especially his mother was really, really, really into it. And since Crowley, as from a very beginning, from from a very early childhood, he always acted a bit weird. <laughs> and his mother, it was it was his mother that started to call him like the beast of the apocalypse because it was like you're such like a shitty child, you must be the child, the beast of apocalypse. And that thing kind of stayed stick with him <laughs> because of course, imagine like you are. A little kid in 1875 to 1890, well, 1885, in in a in Leamington Spa, which is a tiny village uh, up north from London, and all you can read is the King James version of the Bible and nothing else, and then your mother tells you that well, actually, you are the beast of the apocalypse because you're kind of a naughty boy, and uh, I guess I guess you know everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Also, that's also what um, prompted him to look into, you know, into the end times, the apocalypse, the book of Revelations, and try to find a narrative to make sense of whatever else he, he wanted to experience on his life. So like the yeah. apocalypse of Christianity, Christianity is the start of the lemma. It's also like you know, uh, an era stops with the end of whatever, and and a new one starts. But that doesn't mean that he was a satanist. He explored the tropes of satanism. In a way, as much as he explored, you know, um, Chinese mysticism, uh, the Tao, uh, as much as he explored Sufism in Islam, as much as he explored the more um, 
the more mystical side of esoteric Christianity, Rosicrucianism. He was very much uh, enthused with a book by um, a German mystic called Karl von Eckert. I cannot ever pronounce it. We'll, we'll do it right at some point. Uh, it was called The Cloud Over the Century. And, Wait, is uh, this it by book... Eckhart Meister or something like that? Yeah, right, yes. exactly. It's good. <laughs> I mean, me and German names were <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Sorry about that. But The Cloud Over the Century speaks about this uh, mythical gr uh, group of people uh, that kind of guide humanity to be their, their best selves, in a way. And that's straight up Christian mysticism. That, that's Rosicrucianism. So... He, he wanted to he wanted he wanted to find that, and in order to do that, he explored everything that could that could be explored, including Satanism. But he just wanted to play with those rules, like destroying the the whatever whatever it came from, like whatever like was like blocking him down, like a very heavy Christian background, to to free himself. So that's like whenever 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 I've done that, I I don't have to go that go there any longer. Um, also, he, he did not invent the classic um, figure of, of Lucifer, like you know the Baphomet figure that came that came from Elias Levy, 18th century French mystic, French mag mag magician. Of course, thought he was the reincarnation of Levy. So even that figure, the classic Baphomet figure, it it's 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 a mixture of different elements to that basically underline one of the secrets of magic, the Latin magic, and it is by mixing together polar opposites, so you have the male and the female, you have the highest and the lowest, uh, so you have the, the man and the animal, that's why it's the, that goat is kind of a man, but it's got you know, the breast, but it's got a penis, and it's got it's a, it's a beast, but it's also a man, a human. So by mixing this thing, alchemically mixing this, you can actually transcend the human experience and get closer to God, which goes back to, you know, to, to, to what you were saying for lots of thelemites. Yeah, they, they kind of become super edge lords, like <laughs> of the worst kind, because you go, oh, I've done this, now I am, uh, now I'm a god. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, not that easy, it's not that easy at all, you know. Um, and I would argue that as long as you are, as long as you're incarnated as a, as a, as a human, you are a human, and you're, you're experiencing life, and you're experiencing also eventually death as a human. I would argue that is the godlike experience that you can achieve while you when you realize that maybe there is more to existence than this life that is more of an image it's more like a, a godlike vantage point because you see that whatever your experience is like it's 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 a game you decide to play but from from this from this perspective to go and say oh well i'm a god i can do what i want because i'm super cool yeah maybe maybe you're still a teenager you need to grow up a little bit <laughs> I, so I can say. understand how Maybe some of the people who are reading Crowley and who are trying to practice Lima, they get into it for those sort of like ego-driven reasons. So I guess then the next question is, okay, so Crowley was not a Satanist. He wasn't, you know, he's not somebody who was probably inherently, well, maybe he was, but he had mommy issues. And who doesn't, right? <laughs> um, and not everybody who's into Lima is, you know, an asshole. So, I mean, so there's well, that. Yeah. <laughs> so then... Okay, what is the Lima? Is it what Crowley invented? And you mentioned it's a philosophy, it might be a religion, all these things. So this one guy, he just basically invented this entire system, and what is the system? Okay, um, I, something that I, I'm, I'm struggling to do in the work I'm doing here is to try and finally divorce, divorce the Lima from Crowley. Which is the Lima itself, I mean, 
it comes from Crowley, but also comes from uh, Rabelais and uh, uh, one of the books he wrote, which is uh, Gargantua and Pantagruel, whereby he speaks of this um, you know, idealistic society of the Abbey of Dilemma, where uh, people can do, can do their will. So Crowley was inspired, inspired by Rabelais as well. Uh, when we say that he started it, it's because in 1904, when he was on uh, um, say, honeymoon with his first wife, Rose Kelly, uh, they, they were like, casually honeymooning in Cairo, and, and you know, he received uh, almost like a, a call from the above, if you want to say, uh, through, through, his, through his wife, because Rose was like, uh, they were strolling to the Black Museum, and, and Rose was like, just stop on, on her tracks and just say, hey, they're calling for you. And since since Crowley uh, knew that his wife, up until that moment, he never showed any interest in magic, uh, he never, he, he never, he almost, he almost feels like he married there just to, to go away from magic, because he had a lot of bad experience already up to that point, because he joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and he was ejected by it, by William Butler Yeats, the famous boy, just remember as well. Uh, you know, he, he became almost like the second-hand man to Matters, which was his grandmaster, but then they fall apart as well. So he was, he was like, you know, it was this young younger man, was it was 27, something like that. Um, that was like, okay, you know, I tried that. I was looking for that. I didn't find anything. Well, what I found was really was, wasn't really my thing. So let's get married and let's change, change perspective. Um, but it, 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 it didn't work out because his wife, that up until that moment did not show any interest in magic, told him that they were waiting for him and told him what to do. And that is on three successive dates, on 8th, 9th, and 10th April of 1904, he was to prepare a temple space, enter at, at 12 noon, and, and wait for the, for, the, for the instructions to come. And, and that he did. And the, the instruction was Liber Alba Legis, the Book of the Law, which is, again, it's this one thing that, that I have here. And this is Telema. I mean, everything, everything in Telema can be found in this book. It's a very complex book to read. Um, I always ask everybody who wants to know about Telema, read that first, and you won't make anything out of it. I, I, I haven't made out anything out of it after like 25 odd years. It's, it's, very, it's very difficult. Uh, it's a received text, so there's a lot of allegories, there's a lot of strange things, like numbers, that are on a first, you know, on a first glance, I don't know what it is. But I think it's interesting because, again, since also Crowley wrote various comments to it, and he's, in his very last comment, basically say, you, when everybody who reads this book should burn it and never discuss it again. And that's, you know, lots of people have done it, maybe missing the point. What he wanted to do, what he wanted to, to say with that is that to try and avoid another 2,000 years of Christian oppression, um, well, I would say church oppression, because the Christian message, I, I don't mind it at all. It's like, I would say, like, probably try to, to make, make sure that people would not obsess over explaining to you what the, the the holy book is about, because when you when you have that kind of authority, and you can say to people, well, you know, this is what what the book says, so this is what you should think to right. be part of this. You miss the point. You miss the point of dilemma. The point of dilemma is that each and everybody should find their own uh, their own message in it. I would say that there are some points that are that cannot be discussed. Some points are technical, okay, and you can you can like intellectually, uh, I would say almost scientifically. Get to those points because there's here, there's like um, 
various things that you can try. And when you try them, you can get like empirical results, and that should be should be the same for everyone. I mean, Marco, so, you actually teach all the stuff, yeah. right? You you have a, a course called uh, what is it? No Tears Thelema or Thelema Without Tears? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's this course I do at Fredo's book uh, here in London. Uh, I mean, I, it started years ago because when I was a um, manager at Fredo's, um, like the owner, Christina O'Clarenton, which is she's been a very well-known figure in the vegan community worldwide, I would say, but of course here in London, a good friend of mine, uh, I started working for her as a manager, especially on the online, online shop, and, and she was like, hey, well, why don't we do some some courses on Thelema as well. Uh, because at that point, up until that point, so the Fredos did a lot of things on witchcraft, which is, of course, Christina, uh, that's, that's her background, um, Wicca, and then uh, alchemy and history of magic and whatnot. Uh, I would say, like, more than 70% of what happens at Fredos is not so much like selling books, but having events. Like, we have events every night of the week, apart from Saturdays and Sundays, but apart from that, there's always something going on. So I started, I, I, I welcomed her suggestion, and I started this couple of, like, one-offs called um, Meeting Alistair Crowley and His Magic, which is more about, you know, the history of the man, and uh, and then first first steps in Telema, which was, like, two hours, very concise, this is, like, the basic rituals, I'll teach you how to do them. And then I started this, this, more, this more, like, uh, longer, uh, course, six week course, uh, called Atelema Without Tears, which I always found it funny as a name because I probably did write a book called Magic Without Tears, which was basically him. Yeah. It was, it is one of the best the best things he wrote because it's at the very end of, of his life, it was 46 that came out, 47, maybe 47, I don't remember exactly now. And the whole book is he, he replies to letters that. Uh, a member of the OTO, a, a sister in the OTO, uh, just was sell, sending it like, okay, can you explain me this? Can you explain me that? And we just did like, we, we, we run it in, um, what was that? Uh, between end of, end of May and end of June. And it's been, it's been incredibly successful. There's been like 16 people there, which was like, Full because I was like I cannot really do more than sixty people because you, because you want you want to allow each person to be able to say ask questions and whatnot and even if the session is like two hours per night it, it goes it goes away in a second and I was incredibly like uh, surprised to see how how much people came to it how many people came to it with a very open mind and and how many people like stick to it like uh, I would say that of the sixteen people that came to the first first course. I'm still in, in. I'm still in contact with at least twelve of them, and and of them, all of them, they're now part of this group that I'm. I'm, I'm I started after leaving the, the Order of Orientis. So you can see that I, you can definitely find a way to teach this uh, this very complex uh, and very like spread out uh, system of magic and and spirituality. What's, uh, the, it uh, what's the basic syllabus for the six weeks? Like, let's say somebody goes there knows absolutely, you know, like they're coming in from the street. So over the six weeks, what are some basic thing that, things they're going to learn about the Lima? Something that, uh, the way I structured it is like the first, the first nine, well, the first time is always like a, a, an overview. You know, in a way it is kind of something like what we're doing right now. Uh, and, and then like some very basic exercises, because I also believe that the Lima, you know, the, 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 in the book of the, there's like two aphorisms that, 
really condensed the lemon. The first you might have you might have heard is do what I will shall be the whole of the law. And the second is love is the law, love and the will. And do what I will starts with doing. So if like the lemon is all about doing things. Uh, yeah, you can read as much as you want, you can obsess about like a little minutia of what Crowley wrote or not didn't write, but if you then don't do it, you put yourself, you know. In, in, in a circle and try to do something, then you will not really get it. So what I try to do, especially even on the first night, is like at the end of the day, after like, after I spoke like half an hour, but one hour, I say, okay, now we'll go in a circle and we'll do a, like a, a middle pillar exercise, which is uh, it's a cabalistic working to like kind of center yourself and usually. Being a Kabbalist, you know, like you always try to pull the lights from Keter. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Kabbalist. Kabbalah is basically Jewish mysticism, and uh, it can be it can be understood in many ways. Let's say it's it's a way for humanity to try and reconnect with with God uh, by by retracing over a cliff called the, the, the Tree of Life, the steps of creation. So imagine that in, in, in Jewish mysticism, uh, which informed a lot of the magic we do in uh, Western ceremonial tradition, uh, the idea is that you know from God, whatever it is, we cannot know, so kinds of our limitless light, because we cannot really understand God that's beyond us. At some point, they're like this light like pours down into the universe, and create ten different stations. Ten different stations, which are called the Sephiroth. Sephiroth mm. in Hebrew means uh, emanation. Yeah, exactly, something like that. Like means um, emanation number can be mean like uh, Hebrew. Hebrew uh, words can be can mean many things at once. So let's go with emanation. So you have these ten Sephiroth that go from Kether, the crown, to Malkut, kingdom. So exactly. So you can then trace it on your body. And you can almost say like, like that your body is the is a mirror of the cosmos. So if the cosmos is you know, organized by, by this this tree of light, you can then re re uh, cool down this tree of light onto your onto your body, and you can try and, and feel that experience of light coming from from God and and feeling you like feeling your entirety of body. And that's that's a very strong exercise. What happens when you what happens when you do the middle pillar exercise? Like, what's that supposed to do for you? It, it's kind of like starting as a light meditation. So a regulation of breathing. Uh, try to you know, sit with, the, with your back straight and being very like in the in the moment. And then through guided visualization, because of course imagine people are doing that, but I I. I read them something to them, and to guide the visualization and to changing of the breathing pattern, and then chanting names because, for instance, one one way is like you, you just you start chanting chant the name of Nuit, Hadith, Haivas, which are like let's call gods in the Thelemic, uh in the Thelemic system. By doing that, once you've done it, and all the ritual lasts like I would say between twenty minutes tops. And it's funny because at the end of the day, I always ask people like, "Oh, so how much time do you think we've done this?" Everybody says, oh, "It's been like five minutes." I was so fast. And then they look at the clock and they realize they've been there for twenty minutes. So it's like, yeah, that's you know, having this kind of like distortion of perception, being very focused, and us to lose the concept of time, even for short amount of period of time. That's also what I would say magic is about. It's kind of like incredibly focused. Uh, perspective on, on what you're doing. 
And uh, anyway, like that, 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 that's a great way for people to just get get into magic and say, okay, well, this is definitely different. This is something. So what else, what, else, what else is there? And from that point on, you know, I the rest of the course, the rest of the weeks, this, there are five weeks, I'm all about, you know, trying to concentrate on specific elements. One is one is the elements, and that is like the four classic, well, five classic uh, elements, which are heart, air, water, uh, fire, and then spirit. Uh, because again, that's another way of finding your center and creating what is called like your pentagram in order to then aspire the hexagram. Because the pentagram is the perfected man uh, that has a, that has balanced the four elements to to under the under the, the aegis of the spirit. And by doing that, it's almost like you can then create um, I don't know. Uh, you know, data like a telescope dish to go and, and see what's up there, like both or gods, or whatever you want to call it. And that's called the hexagram. Uh, in Telema, then you also have the heptagram, like the seventh point of stars, which is lies beyond God. And I would say this is what this is one of the new elements of, of Telema, that moving from the Oldian, and the old magic of the Oldian, to what we do now. From that, then you know we, we start working on uh, uh, teaching about uh, pentagram rituals, hexagram, hexagram rituals, and then working on, uh, on the tarot completely, uh, can be can be traced completely on the tree of life, so you can put like you know the uh, Kabbalah and Tarot together, because by doing that, you and this is what Crowley did in a book called Seven Seven Seven. By doing that, you can create a very detailed set of correspondences that then can be useful to you when you create your own rituals. It's really very very brainy, <laughs> I would say. Wait, uh, so is, but, is it is it the the top the thought or thought tarot yeah, that's yeah. what Crowley's system, the thelema or thelema, yes. is that what it's so, all based on? Yes. Uh, uh, what the, the top deck was uh, a, a joint effort by uh, uh, Frida Ladieris, uh, which by the way is the one that did those pictures behind me, and, and Crowley. Uh, it, they, it's funny because at first they thought they would work on it like a couple of months, they worked on it five years. During the Blitz, so basically, like, while 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 the while London was bombed by the Nazi Germany, um, they were still working on it. And it's like when you read the diaries, it's such a commitment because they really wanted to do it. They they had a very weird relationship. They were not lovers. I think Friedrich was one of the few women that probably did not live with, I suppose. But, and, and what they did. Not only, not only uh, Lady Aries completely like rethrown all the 78 cards, and and I personally I love the style. She was unique in what it was like, very like geometric shapes that sh change into each other, and there's a lot, a lot of use of color. But also, she followed Crowley's idea of what the, the cards, the new cards, should look like. You know, moving from the classic Rider Waite deck into this new Telemic deck, which also has some changes because, for instance, some cards are changed in position, and some uh, some iconography is very different because again, it's to to make to to, to show, showcase the showcase the new laws of the lemma. How has the how has the actual laws changed from from the previous year to this new year? And when I speak about years, we haven't really touched that. Um, Basically, in 1904, when he received the Book of the Law, for, he, he stated that that was the start of a new era. That's what Ian mean. Uh, Ian can be me, can be me. It's mostly used uh, in Gnosticism, and uh, which is another another tradition that probably you know, work with. 
and years are both periods of time and also I would say magical laws and I would say also gods. So each time an eon change is because the previous god almost both goes into retirement, <laughs> if you wish, and, and a new uh, new management comes in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, that's, it's, I guess that's what it is. <laughs> so in you know, was like ushering in the eon of the child uh, of Horus, while the, the eon of the father, Osiris, was going into retirement. Wait, why, are, why are these eons uh, Egyptian gods? Well, uh, that's a very good question, in fact. Uh, they, they took the form of Egyptian gods because Ibrahim the Legis was received in Cairo. He probably never really wrote ex extensively about it, but you know, other people did, and from my perspective, having worked with these entities, energies, gods, for 20 years, I would say that they, those Egyptian names are masks. In fact, you know, in the book of the law, you hear of Nuit, which is the goddess Nuit. I mean, it goes back to the goddess of the sky. But it's a very different Nuit, because the Nuit of the Octoad, of the original Egyptian mythology, it's, it's not such a prominent deity. I mean, it's one of the original nine, but it's not like such a prominent deity as Isis, for instance, later. In, in the Book of the Law, she is like, she's the, no, no, no more, there's nothing more than her because she's everywhere. And she is like cosmos, the infinite expansion. Uh, then you have Hadith. Hadith doesn't really exist in Egyptian, uh, in Egyptian lore because uh, Bejuti is the actual name of that Winklow lady, but of course probably didn't know much of Egyptian, I mean, it wasn't much of an Egyptian scholar at the time, and also there were like very poor translations of the hieroglyphs at the time, I mean, Egyptian, Egyptian law was just being discovered with the discovering of the Rosetta Stones a couple of 20 years before, so you know, it was much more of a new thing, because came into Telema as Egyptian deities. I would say they're, they're Telemic energies of the New Year that took the guise and mask of Egyptian gods because they were received in the, they came into this world in that point in Cairo. When you when you go into you know, when you when you study Telema when maybe you join uh, groups like if you join the Orgo Temperantis uh, without saying anything that I'm still bound by old uh, you see other things as well. You see other names, and you see other other gods, and and that is because at the end of the day, Telema tells you that you are your own god. That is the, the concept in the Book of the Law. There is no god but man, which most people will read that and think, oh, it's an atheist, uh, you know, atheist, like they don't believe in God. I would argue that there is no god but man can be also seen as there is no man but God. So like, by inverting that, the concept is that each, each of us carry the spark of God. So each of us eventually will find our hidden God, and, our, and we will call him or her, or it, whatever it is, sorry, uh, the way we decide to call it. For Crowley, it was the, it was the Egyptian days because he, he had that experience there. Everything that you're describing about Crowley he reminds me of like a DJ, right? He's like mixing and remixing like beats from different sorts of genres to make like a cohesive piece. But he's not just sticking to one dogma, one order. And I'm starting to think like maybe that's his main contribution. Let me see like 
Well, that's what they seem to be seen on, on, uh, until this day's discourse as you know, cultural appropriation, if you wish. But Crowley did it being very, very honest about it, because he loved all of this. He wanted, and he wanted to create something new. Well, I would I guess maybe it is a very like white, what almost well, I wouldn't say white supremacy because it's 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 got a bad uh, connotation. But I think like when you when when you when you're a member of the British Empire yeah, and you think that, yeah, ev- yeah, everything like belongs to you in a way. But he, he approached it in, in a in an honest way. Like he wanted to get whatever really whatever really really loved and make it something new and be like almost paying homage to all of it, you know? So yeah, you can definitely see it was like a spiritual Well, you know, I, I just spoke to somebody, um, so Swamiji Nisarg, and he was talking about the I Ching and how Crowley loved the I Ching. Like he was a devout student of it. I mean, it wasn't just like how most people, they read a couple books and it's like, oh, I know I Ching. No, like Crowley really studied it and he was trying to find towards the end of his life a cohesive system to kind of put with the I Ching. So in yeah. that respect, you know, like uh, I often tell people, you can tell who's culturally appropriating and who's culturally appreciating. It's kind of like yeah, pornography. You just know. Yeah. You don't know on paper, but when you see what they do and how they express things, you know who's appropriating. But in this respect, it seems as though Crowley was definitely more of an appreciator. Yeah, I mean, I mean he well, you're right. <laughs> yeah. uh, he, was, he was really, really appreciate, appreciated the word and the... Uh, and the multi multicolors of the world, you know, like he wanted to be part of it. I mean, I also remember, like he was, he was straight up bisexual. So I mean, like he was like really, he loved men and women alike. So and he loved the human experience, all of it. Something that I didn't answer before when you had, you had one of your questions, you asked me, like, it is also good that he had like this weird concept about sex with, like, he put a famous thing in the paper, like looking for uh, dwarfs and uh, Harrison Parks women and whatever, like it was. <laughs> he was doing that because he knew that sex is one of the most powerful experience of humanity that we have, uh, but also to try and, and marry something that, was, that, that is inherently connected with the idea of beauty, like we, we, we feel attracted to those we like, right? And we want to have sex with people we like. Most of the time, especially the first thing is physical attraction, right? Uh, so he was thinking, what if I marry that feeling with something that usually also, uh, use the energy of created, like physical energy created through the sexual union in almost in a detached way? So, so that was the idea behind it. Uh, I think he botched it many times, to be fair, because he was also a very self-centered man, and that's no denying that, and most of the times he left left people behind and you know they did become emotionally attached to him and he did not because for him for him it was like you know almost like hey I told you before I, this was on my experiment right and oh and then they had so like oh yeah but I'm in love with you like, oh yeah, my god why. he was a fuck boy okay <laughs> <laughs> you know what honestly that, that's a problem per se and unfortunately I can testify that in the in the Dynamic community you you feel you find a lot of people like that modern and women <laughs> you see, like, and I think that that's missing the point, and completely, because while whereby yes, you know, you can decide to to engage in, in a relationship on whatever terms that work for both parties, but 
it must be who you stated at the beginning. <laughs> and if you don't, then yeah, that is a problem right there. And I would argue that even uh, the magic doesn't work as well, because also when you read Crowley's diaries, a lot of his magical, sex magical uh, attempts were completely failures. Well, you know, you've mentioned OTO. And I'm guessing that OTO is connected to Thelema. Uh, I'm not a member of the Eurocampus anymore, so I'm not speaking on behalf of them. Okay. Uh, it stands, the word stands, uh, stands for Ordo Templi Orientis, or Order of the Templars of the East, or Order of the uh, Who of created the East. OTO? Crowley? Yeah. Uh, Crowley came to Thelema later. Because OTO was created by Karl Kellner, which was a uh, industrialist and also an, a Freemason. And uh, he uh, wait, Freemason? He, I I think when most people think of Freemason, they think about like secret societies and like you look on the back yeah. of the dollar bill and there's that pyramid with the all-seeing eye and they're like, ooh, Illuminati. Uh, Trust me, I mean, I'm a Freemason as well, and trust me, that's nothing like that. That's nothing like that at all. It's uh, Freemasonry. It, 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 it is really in this, in this day and age. It's really is a big charitable foundation where, yeah, there's some there's some an element of ritual done, but it's uh, it's mostly like men getting together or women because there's also co-masonry. It exists, and it, I wouldn't say it exists much in the U.S., but in in the U.K. it exists. It's thriving. Um, oh, you also have female-only Freemasonry, so yeah, it, 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 there's all, all over the spectrum, if you want. Wait, is this a social group then, or it's a magical order that happens to also be social? It, it, started, it, started, it started as a magical, mystical order. I would say as a mystical order, more than a magical order, and the difference is subtle, but it's there. And, uh, and over the years, uh, it, just, it just changed because it became more of a... Uh, you know, have you ever heard of something like called the Lions Club or the Rotary Club? Those yeah. are... Those are the same things. They come from Freemasonry, uh, but they they got rid of all the you know, meeting in lodges and opening the lodge and closing the lodge. While Freemasonry, we still do that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a group. Uh, it's a brotherhood of people that want to try and do do good for the world. And the way it's done, it's mostly by charity drives and uh, try to help the the community. Uh, just to give you an example, here in the UK. Uh, United Grand Lodge of England, which is the first and main Masonic body in the world, is the second biggest contributor to charities in the country. Back when Karl Kellner in 1902, well, let's say early 1900s, created the Order of Empirantis, he wanted to get the idea of Freemasonry, and, that, uh, and we, we don't know much about those people that start here, deal. It's a beautiful book called Forgotten Templars by Richard Kaczynski, which I uh, suggest to everybody wants to go deeper. Uh, so they basically, Carl Kellner, just like the story goes, that he, he discovered Tantra, and so, so basically sex magic, and he wanted to bring it into a Masonic uh, environment. So he wanted uh, to have orgies, basically. Sorry? He wanted to have orgies at his social <laughs> Well, uh, not really, because sex magic is not about orgies, really. But let's say he wanted to he wanted to use the power of sex uh, to to make to make his Masonic work even better. I'm just trying to to make it simple, okay? And uh, and he created Order of Apparatus by by giving uh, giving a Templar spin to the to the usual Masonic. Uh, Masonic framework. The Masonic framework is basically uh, all based on the Old Testament, and then 
certain later um, orders of Freemasonry, like the ancient and accepted right, for instance, then uh, extend the, the Old Testament narrative in the New Testament. Okay, so Calcarner say, hey, this is cool, but let's let's put Templars into the mix as well because it, everybody loves Templars, especially in that time. And the idea, you know, that is. Uh, highly mystical and highly militaristic uh, group of uh, Christian fighter monks went to the promised land and recaptured the country promised land and uh, discovered something there. We never like this. That's what the temple is like. They discovered something. And people have inferred many things. What is that they discovered? We don't really <laughs> Remember that Indiana we, Jones movie? Indiana Jones yeah. and the, the Holy Grail? In 1907, he, he has all these Masonic degrees. Crowley was part of this more clandestine side of Masonry, and then he found the OTO, because uh, like by virtue of his high degrees in Masonry, he was invited in, in the OTO as well. And then the, the turning point that made, made him think this, is, this could be something I can use for Telema, is in 1912 when Theodore Royce, which was the grandmaster for the world at the time, uh, came and visited him, almost like the story goes, almost like, what the hell have you done because you published the secrets of OTO? And he was like, what? What are you talking about? And <laughs> apparently, in, um, in one of the books he published uh, called The Book of Lies, uh, apparently without knowing, Crowley, in fact, uh, wrote down in poetry form some of the highest the, of the secrets of the audio, the things that Kruber Royce at the time thought nobody else should know these things, which is sexual, sexual magical acts, sexual magical rituals. And, uh, and Kruber was like, well, I didn't know that. Uh, so Royce, uh, the story goes, and then Royce told him, that now that you know that you published this, I need to make sure you, you like, sign an oath of secrets because you cannot publish more. And, and so from, the, from that point up until the 19, early 1920s, then he became, he became the grandmaster of OTO. And then he, used, he, wanted, he started to use the OTO as a vehicle of promulgating the law of dilemma. Or at least that's what he wanted to do. Uh, he, he changed the narrative of a lot of the degrees from strictly Masonic to being strictly dilemma. And of course, I cannot, I cannot speak plainly about what happens in the degrees. So can that, we just clear this up, okay? So, the lemma uh, is the the frame. It's a thought framework, but the yes. OTO is kind of the place that kind of takes lemma and says, "This is how we're going to do it and teach it." So, is it kind of like a church? Uh, no, <laughs> it, it's more like uh, it, it's it's more it's more like a gym. <laughs> it's a gym. <laughs> Yes, because, because because by by being a member of, of Order of Apprentice, in theory, uh, you can learn how to live your life in a more telemic way, which is similar to the message of Freemasonry, because by being a Freemason, in theory, you can learn how to live your life the best you can, like to be a, a good, good citizen, a good person, okay? Uh, the, 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 I would say that the aim of the OTL was supposed to be to, to teach you that, not so much the magical system, because that's more the AA that teaches like the magical mystical system of the like what, what we were discussing before, you know, the telemic middle pillar. That's something that, for instance, uh, you will learn in the AA. I I hear these things. How how do I do them? I do it in my life to live my life telemically. The problem there is that over the years, uh, the OTO has 
through many incarnations, if you wish. When Crowley died in 47, he left it to a man called Carl Gerber, Frater Saturnus, and uh, he didn't do a very good job, I would argue, because he basically let, he basically let it die. Uh, there were, you know, the worst, at, by, the, by, the end, by the end of the, by, by the 40s, by the end of the 40s, only one lodge was really active, and that was the Cabe Lodge in um, uh, in Los Angeles. If you've seen, if you heard about Jack Parsons, or you've seen Strange Angel, Mm-hmm. That's that's him. That's them. Basically, Jack Parsons was uh, the master of the lodge at the time, and he, he was the only one really like working the OEL at the time. Because over the years, probably before and then Garber, they just they just didn't do a good job of finding the right people to run the various lodges, and uh, and he just you know died down. Then what happened there is that there's been like a period between like the 60s and the late 70s where the OEL wasn't really there. And then a man, another American, called Grady McMurtry, uh, reactivated it. And and then there's been like the 80s where, um, while this man was trying to uh, sorry, to restart the audio, there were claimants from a man called Marcelo Mota in Brazil that say, well, no, I am the actual audio, so they went to the court and Grady won. And then a man here in the UK called Kenneth Grant say, no, I am the audio. I would argue that in the end, the Americans, uh, like won the, the right to call themselves Ohio through through court cases, and just because basically they, they purchased the copyright to the term. Wait, Real, how long were you it, in the OTO, and what was your role in the OTO? I was like just just over five years. People that are like the the Grand Secretary General is a great man. Um, there's people in what's called like the chapter. Uh, they're great people, but most of them, again, you have, you have these old people, and when I say old, like you know, 65 and up, that are completely divorced to the reality of this world, and they're clinging on to their power without wanting to ever relinquish anything, and uh, without ever wanting to make change in the world, which is what the ODO should, should, should do. I mean, if you read, if you read like the founding papers, the ODO really, well, the founding papers not by Kellner, the original Masonic ones, but I mean like the ODO ones done by Crowley, the OTO should be like a, an engine of change to promulgate liberty and freedom, and uh, and then that that's really not happening because all you all you my experience tells me that all you, all happens is that you get these little cliques of people that want to belong together that they really don't want to engage with the outside world so it becomes kind of a cultish behavior. Uh, it's like people in certain places, not here in the UK, but definitely in Florida. Like leaders, like encourage people to just marry to each other. You know, it's kind of cultish, like sectarian behavior, behavior to it all. But this, this, this wasn't really the problem. The problem, what happened for me, like I, I say, well, this is not good anymore. When in the summer of seventeen, August seventeen, you know the Char- Charlottesville rallies that happened in uh, America, like the fucking Nazis. I'm, I'm really anti-Nazis. <laughs> so, and one member of the ODO, a younger, very young member, ended up being in, in the pictures. I mean, that picture is just shared. And so lots of people, like me and others, were like, this is bad, this is bad publicity, we should do something about it. And some of these key older leaders were like, well, I don't know about that, because at the end of the day, Trump is good. So that is what that is that is the problem that has been tearing the ODL apart for the last two years, and one of the one of 
one of the two reasons I left, because I, I have to face reality that not all, those people at the top are old and jaded, but also because they are they're fucking fascists. That's the reality of that. And that's a problem, because, because again, Dilemma, Crowley says very specifically, Dilemma should fight fascism as much as it should fight communism should fight all sorts of totalitarianisms and anything that destroyed the freedom of the individual. So that was me. Like, what the fuck? What, what, what am I? What, what am? What am I? Am I like a public figure for? I don't want to be that, you know. And then what happens next is uh, I uncovered a series of sexual scandals here in the UK, uh, whereby a member um, literally went up and raped couple of sisters and um, let's say due process inside you know insider due process was done but I think it was done very poorly uh, this person was allowed to um, to resign before being expelled and uh, and basically in a way for me it was a, a way of the leadership of this country to just wash his hands wash, wash their hands with it uh, because like you know like we cannot do anything like uh, the guy resigned, we can't, we can't expel him anymore, and that's that was like a. It, it just proved that the people at the top are not in for the right reasons anymore. At least for me, especially when they let, uh, let's say, a middle manager person to just then go online and victim shame and slut shame uh, one of these two sisters that were like raped, which is a horrible thing, and and, and this she, she's a woman. So she's like, well, I'm a woman. I can say these things. And I was like, no, bullshit. You just, you don't. Don't say this thing. So that, that was me. Was was the end of the story. Like, uh, I, I'm leaving because I don't believe in. I don't believe in the um, That said, there I think there's plenty of good people. In people in there's people I know in Italy. They're fantastic. There's including like my master Sabasgis. They're great men. They're trying all they can to kind of steer the, the order back, back in track, but I don't, I don't know if it's possible, because... If somebody, okay, let's say after hearing this, people are just like, oh, you know, OTO sounded really, like, cool and far out, but I'm not going there anymore, then where they, where can they go to to learn about the lemma? That is a very good question, because um, there's nothing else that really can contend the OTO's position because it's a very well it's a it's a very let's say it's a very established brand, right? Like so, like you think Harvard, you think Oxford, like a huge university. I would say that is the same for the OTO and Telema. Uh, the brand is there and again the, the, the teachings are good. Like uh, if you're interested in Telema, if you're interested in going deeper into Telema, the OTO does teach you the right way. The problem is that the people teaching it right now are Piece of shit for the boss. <laughs> Sorry for my French, but uh, so what? What can they do? Uh, I I don't know. Uh, I I've been trying to to set up something alternative here in London, but it will never it will never be like the OTO. Uh, also because I mean I you know, I decided to not teach the same things that the OTO teaches because you know I have all the rituals right, so I I could say okay I'm going to do OTO two point zero, but I I also have sore holds of keeping those things secret. Or you know, only speak with other initiates. So I would never do that. Uh, what I'm, I set up something called Ecclesia Gnostica Universalis, which is an Catholic church, which was first established in the 1990s, uh, 
when by by a group of people like Tao Erijina and a couple of others uh, that decided not to do a split from the audio, but they say they decided to create a little like an alternative. Okay, and then another person uh, called uh, Alan Greenfield uh, kind of revitalized again in the in the in year 2000, and then now now I'm doing it again. Pretty much, it's it's, it's more like an open source kind of group, like you know. Uh, it, but again, it will never be like the audio, so it's not like uh, people that are watching this this video that can say, okay, I want to join, because all, in reality, I, I can only work with people that are here in London, you know? And so it, while the audio is it's all over the world, and uh, you can find ways to go to, to audio gatherings. It's just that I cannot, I cannot in, good, in good conscience uh, suggest anybody to join the audio, because in good conscience, I don't know if somebody joins now, they won't get raped three years down the line, because at some level, the you know the the the, the, the common the common uh, it just it just fractured. So I can I, I cannot see that you know something bad will happen to them because there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of shitty people in here. For people who are just like wanting to know more, just about the lemma, you know, maybe not the OTO and how they do it, but just about, because I mean, as you mentioned, like that book, reading it and stuff, it, it's not the easiest read, right? What are, some, what, are some, what are some things that you can tell them ahead of time that will help them as they're reading that book? Well, I would say that there are other books that can prepare to that, to read it below. And, uh, there's one book called like Fresh Fear from the Skies by this guy called EO 131. That's that's a good that's a good intro. That's a good primer. Um, there's I've got this one. There's this huge me called The Law of the Lemma by by Antibach, and it's interesting because this order here is it's one of those uh, neo-Nazi telemites that I would that I would usually not suggest, but honestly he did he did an amazing job because he what he did here is that he he put all, all quotes from Crowley from his entire corpus and his structures. Okay, when Crowley speaks about mysticism, this is what Crowley says. When Crowley speaks about politics, this is what he, he speaks. And despite him being definitely on the far right spectrum of of things, uh, he did a very good job of keeping it neutral. So I would say that book, The uh, Love of the Lamb of and then you can go into liberal religious and have a a better understanding of what liver albulages is. There is, uh, if you're more interested in uh, something more practical, there's uh, what's it called like uh, oh, the Magic of Alistair Crowley or Magic of Alistair Crowley by Lomaio Duquet, which is a fantastic primer. If like Lomaio Duquet is uh, one of the oldest members of like living members of the of the dynamic system, because I mean, member of the AA, member of the OGL, um one of the good. You know, like one of the reasons why I'm getting more interested in Crowley, when before I was just sort of like, uh, is my friend Barrow was telling me this, and I was like, this makes sense. How a lot of chaos magicians, they, uh, especially the ones who have written a lot of books and are well known in the the circle, they had a very strong foundation of Crowley. And from that, they were able to get great results from chaos magic, whereas a lot of people, they jumped into chaos magic without having that foundation, and they found their results to be a little bit lackluster. So this makes me almost think there must have been something about what Crowley was writing about, about the lemma, that gave these chaos magicians the ability to be free. 
So maybe, you know, just like Picasso said, he had to first study for years and years at art school so that he could be the, the you know, the cubist artist that he became. Because, like you said before, like, he was in, like out of, of his law for uh, religion and spirituality, and he, he went in a mix and match from many different cultures, and that's what Dilemma is. So I would argue that he was definitely maybe the first chaos magician. Um, I'm very, a very good friend with Phil Hine, that he was one of the original chaos magicians. He came to one of my classes because it's like, I was never a Thelemite. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you kind of wrote like the, one of the many books on that. But he, he, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel himself as a Thelemite at all. He is, you know, his background is more in uh, witchcraft, of all things, actually, and then in Tantra and, you know, uh, Eastern traditions. But it's definitely true that people like Ray Sherwin and Picaro, they had this huge Thelemic background because at the times, like 70s, 80s, in the UK, there was no OTL, so there was no way you can easily go and say, okay, I'm a And, but at the same time, there was there were a lot of people like printing Crowley, because, um, you know, the, the OTL not being reactivated yet, nobody was actually, you know, claiming copyright, so everybody was right. So, of course, people come into this text and was like, oh, this is interesting, it's very liberating, and, uh, and that, that, that's, that's how Chaos Magic came, came together. It is definitely true that they had the, uh, as you said before, the, the discipline to do it very, like, very strictly. Whereby Chaos Magic, the way I then discovered Chaos Magic in the 90s, it just became something like, well, you don't have to do much work, just, just do a sigil and it's going right. to be fine. Uh, I would argue, yeah, that's a good way to start. But if in order to have like actual success and, and repeated success, you must give yourself a strict discipline because if not, it's, it's, again, it's just like going to the gym once and say, "Oh yes, I feel less bloated." But if you if you want to feel a six pack, you have to go to the gym every time. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off. <laughs>